said I'd put up a fight to be someone A fight to be me But see now, I'm down under the pavement Of Capitol Hills and lowercase people As time rolls by, my dreams have become That which is attainable Not what I'm looking for I've got the company car I'm the one swinging to the low bar Yeah, I've become one with the one that I've never believed in But I've got the company car Hey, I'm the king of things I've always despised I'm the gingerbread man who got eaten alive I'm half-baked, I'm fake But see, I've got hotels on Park Place and Broadwalk Hundred bucks I pass go, but oh, life's taken its toll. Have I won the napper to forfeit my soul? But see, I've got the company car. I'm the one swinging at two below par. I become one with the ones that I never believed in. I've got the company car, yeah. On the king's horses at the foot of the wall They're taking pictures of a man who's lost all of his massive pretension He's got two faces left It's the one that he hides on the left behind that smile Hiding tears and fears that burns like an engine it drives him away from the one that he loves. Mike was right. Hey, Mike, we're one and the same. We're the faceless combatants in the loneliest game. I would say I'll wait as I'm driving by with that smirk in my eye, yelling, Hey, I'm something, man. Check me out. I got the company car. I'm the one swinging to below par I become one with the ones that I never believed in I've got the company car you check me out, I've got the company car Yeah, check me out, I've got the company car, yeah And now, Lord God, we pray that you would help us to preach. And just as we gave an offering of money and resources, now, Lord God, I pray that we would offer our hearts, our minds, our body, our soul, our spirit to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, uh, everybody needs to have one of these cards. So uh, everybody get a card. You need a card and a pencil. They're in the uh, seat pockets in front of you. Um, so does everybody have one, okay? If you don't have one, there should be one near you. Okay, everybody hold up. If, if, does everybody have one? Everybody needs one, says my life on it. Anybody that doesn't have a card, raise your hand. Okay, all right, because you don't have a card, maybe you don't have a life. All right, and then you need a pencil, too, or something uh, to write with. Just hang on to that for a minute. I'll explain it in just uh, a little bit. In, in the last two sermons, we preached on the logos, the reason, and the reason become flesh. 
like music becomes a dance. When we surrender our reason to God's reason, we enter a dance and the dance is life and the dance is love. For the last two sermons, we've talk, been talking about the prologue to the Gospel of John, John 1 verses 1 through 18. But if you were paying close attention, you notice that we skipped some verses. Um, in the midst of what's coming up, John talks about what's been, uh, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, according to Jesus, was uh, the greatest of all those born of women. He was like the pinnacle of the uh, old covenant. And so in the prologue, John has been telling us a little bit about John the Baptist, and I, I wanna look at it this morning. Verse six, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all, not, not some, all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Then in verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And then verse 19, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if, if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. That was something a slave did. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan where John was baptizing. John was baptizing with water, but he prophesied that one was coming who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. But now John is baptizing with water for repentance. So people are coming to John confessing their hamartia in, in Greek, their, their sins. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Make straight in the desert a highway for our Lord. That's how I think the... King James translates Isaiah. Comb your hair, brush your teeth, because I am that I am is coming. The logos, the reason, the foundation of all things, the judge of all is coming. John 5, 22. All judgment has been given to the Son. So we must each appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We must each give account, in Greek, a logos, to God. And so that's what that card is about, the My Life card and the pencil. It's just a little tool that I came up with to help us examine our lives and give account. So pull out the card. On the left, okay, you'll see this uh, line, what I want to be. Underneath, uh, I want you to write 
your goals from 10 years ago. Now, if you're 15 or under, do five years ago or something, you know, but uh, what were your goals 10 years ago? Even if you didn't write them down, you had them. They might be something like this. Uh, ethical goals. I, I want to stop drinking so much. I, I want to stop looking at pornography. I want to give more of my money to others. I want to sacrifice myself for my friends and my family. So, so just pick, pick two of those goals that you think from 10 years ago and just write them down, okay? Just enough so you know what they, what they were. Every head bowed, every pencil writing, okay? <laughs> Do it, all right? Don't have to be exact. Just, just approximate. Okay, now I divided it up. So you had some ethical kind of goals. You had relational goals, like I want to meet regularly with three close friends. I want to spend more time with my children. I want to stay married and for my kids to like me. I want everyone to like me because I'm not a people pleaser, okay? Whatever your goals were, uh, think back, uh, probably hopefully some are the same and just make a note to yourself. Probably had some personal goals, like I, I wanna lose weight, I wanna play an instrument, I wanna go on a mission trip, I wanna earn a, a degree. Write, write a couple down there. Career goals, I, I want a promotion. I want to make more money. I want to write books. I want to pastor a large church where everyone's happy and they all like me. I mean, whatever it is, just, just write it down, okay? I don't know, it could be just about whatever. Lastly, you may have had some, some faith goals. I want to read my Bible every day. I mean, you've made vows like that, right? I want to walk in the joy of the Lord, never be sad again. I want to forgive everybody the way I've been forgiven. I, I want to look like Jesus. That's a, that's a good one. Okay, so on the left, it's what I want to be, okay? Now, on the right, you'll see another column that says uh, what I am. I want you to take account of how you're doing. One being poor, 10 being perfect, and then give yourself a score. Now, as you're doing that, let me say that some of these are kind of hard, like I want to stop looking at porn. I mean, what's porn? Underwear ads or penthouse magazine? Or I want to look like Jesus. I mean, really, who looks like Jesus? So what I find helpful is to compare myself with some of my friends and family. So the more friends I have addicted to porn, the, the higher my score, for instance. <laughs> And the less the folks around me look like Jesus, the more I do look like Jesus relative uh, to them. You see, it's a problem to have too many folks around you looking like Jesus. Well, anyway, 
grade yourself, okay, under each, each goal. Give yourself a score for each category. And then I want you to add those together, okay? See right there, you add all those up. And then divide by 10. Now, if you're not good at math, that's really easy. You just move the little dot over one, okay? One decimal point. And then I want you to plot that over on the right on your My Life scorecard. Plot that score on the target on, on the right. If, if you got a 10, perfect in everything, you got a bullseye, all right? If you got like a five, however, just, just count here, you know, out to the fifth ring or whatever and, and put a big old X there. Uh, you missed the bullseye, you missed the target, but, but you know, you're there somewhere. And then, and then shade in those first uh, five rings, okay? Now that's your judgment of the size of your failure. In Greek, that's the size of your hamartia, that is your sin. Hamartia literally means to miss the mark. So, so when the Bible talks, in, in, at least in the New Testament, the Greek portion about sin, it's talking about missing the mark. Now folks disagree over what exactly the mark is, yet I haven't met a person that didn't believe there was a mark. In other words, everyone could fill out this, this card. In other words, everyone uses the word should. I should, you should, we should, you should on me, I should on you, we should on ourselves. My life is just like a, a pile of should. <laughs> like to be human is to should on yourself and everyone around you. It is to have the knowledge of good and evil, the knowledge of the mark and hamartia, missing the mark, sin. To be human is to know that you should be something and you're not. Trying to be that something is what most religion is about. It's, a, it's about, it's about a, a list of, of goals and some guilt so you'll try harder. You see, everybody is religious. If the list of goals is your own list, it's your own personal religion. However, no list of goals is simply your own list. We, we all have faith that some things are, quote, good, and that we should all know what good is. Well, well God is good. And, and so every list of goals is a reflection of God's goal, and that is to make us in his image, make us good, because you see, God is good. If we try to make ourselves good, we, 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 we need his list. <laughs> the knowledge of good and evil. Well, every list of life goals is a reflection of God's list, whether you write your own personal list or you get your list from Stephen Covey at a seminar or have a list handed to you by a judge or a preacher. See, most people think that uh, one religion is better than another religion because one has a better list than, than another. And that list we call the law, God's law, that is God's goals. Many think Christianity is best because our list is best because we have one new cool law called faith. 
But, but that's kind of confusing. So we hire preachers to tell us what faith means. Like, read your Bible, say your prayers, give money to the church, obey the Big Ten, and then we try super, super hard to have faith. In John's day, most preachers and pastors were known as scribes and Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees have a bad name in our culture, but upon close examination, they were probably the group that looked most like us, American evangelical Christians. I mean, they went to great lengths to explain what was good, uh, what was faithful, and then they tried really, really, really hard to be good and to be faithful. They were the spiritual superstars of their day, if not in everybody's mind, at least in, in their own minds. But Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. Jesus says you must be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. You know, you know, Jesus was the perfect image of the invisible God. Jesus is the mark. We crucified the mark. <laughs> With every sin, with every lustful thought, with every prideful ambition, we, we pounded the nails. And if you say that you have no sin, John tells us that the truth is not in you. You're, you're living a lie. And well, that is sin. Just cover the whole thing black. Well, we each have a my life scorecard, right? You know what I mean? We have a My Life scorecard far more complicated than the one that you're, you're holding in your hand. We keep it in our head and in our heart. We lie to ourselves constantly or we should on ourselves constantly, desperately trying to take away our sin or, or hide our sin, get rid of the spot. It's, it's everything you regret in the past. It's everything that you fear in the future. Shame over sin, destruction by sin, punishment for sin, a slave to sin. Humanity is infected with sin and doomed by sin to die. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. John 1. They were confessing, exposing their sins. Verse 28, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, you know what Bethany means? House of depression. <laughs> Great place, huh? House of misery. It's just across the Jordan, just across the Jordan from the promised land. Next verse. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel, the people of God, and John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained, it remained on him. I myself did not know him. And it appears they were cousins, but he didn't know him, who he really was. 
But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on him you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, I know very few people who believe that. <laughs> with their mind. And I don't think I know anyone that believes that completely with their heart. Because if they did, even though they were in this world, they would be like otherworldly. For in their world, there would be no hamartia, no, no sin. In fact, sin would have like no substance for them. It literally would not compute. It would not be reckoned. It would not be recorded. It, it could only be counted as nothing. If it were encountered, it might feel like something, like a punch in the ribs. It might feel like something, but be counted as nothing. Well, anyway, behold the... Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the lamb. What was John thinking about, the lamb? Well, in the Gospel of John, John the disciple goes out of his way to point out that Jesus was crucified just as millions of lambs were being slaughtered in the temple for the Passover. Remember, the Passover commemorates the night that the messenger of death passed over the houses of Israelites where lamb's blood was smeared on the door. For in the morning they set out on a journey and one generation later they would cross the Jordan into the promised land. John the Baptist must have been thinking about the Passover lamb, right? And he also must have been thinking about the sacrificial lambs uh, John the Baptist's father was a priest, and so John was in line to be a priest. Every day in the temple, the priests would offer two lambs, like Abraham offered the lamb uh, 2,000 years before in the same spot on Mount Moriah. The idea was that the burnt offering might take away sin, and yet we know it was only a shadow of the one who would take away sin. John had just uh, quoted Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. This is Isaiah uh, 53. He was wounded. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crucified for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all like a lamb led to slaughter. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. His soul, his life makes an offering for sin. Passover lamb, sacrificial lamb, the suffering servant lamb. And in John's day, they had one other picture of a lamb that's kind of weird for us, but it's the apocalyptic conquering lamb. In the Revelation, John sees the lamb standing on the judgment seat of God as if it had been slain and quote, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them Praise this lamb on the throne. It's like he really did take away the sin of the world. Well, most people say, well, yeah, 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 but it's not really the sin of the whole world. 
What John the Baptist really meant to say was, behold the Lamb of God who takes away some of the sin of the world. But that's not what John the Baptist said. And I don't think that's what John the disciple heard. 1 John 2.2, he writes, Jesus Christ is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Dang. So John the Baptist pointed out sins. He was the pinnacle of the Old Testament. And John the disciple proclaimed that sin had been taken away. He preached the gospel, a baptism of fire. Fire, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, when does the Lamb of God take it away? 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul writes, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. And the temple sacrifices ended with the death of Jesus and the temple was destroyed. And that's what Isaiah prophesied about when he wrote, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In John 12, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler, that is the accuser, Satan, now will the accuser be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people unto myself. John 19, 28 and 30, knowing that all was now finished, Jesus said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I mean, it's like, it's like John thinks, John The disciple thinks that at the cross, Jesus took the sin of the world away. Dang! I mean, what if, what if he really did? Well, all would be forgiven. There'd be like unlimited do-overs, you know what I mean? You know what a mulligan is in golf? It's when you get a free shot. Unlimited mulligans for everybody. No one could fail. No one could lose. Losers would win. The last would be first. The poor would be rich. Deaths would be canceled. It'd be like the year of jubilee. Unlimited do-overs. Everyone would be like born again and again and again and again and again. I could think of no better news, right? And I could think of no more offensive news. Imagine that the Broncos are playing the Colts or the, or the Ravens right now. You're not watching because you're here at church. Hallelujah. But just imagine that you were watching and you cared, okay, and the score was tied. And they were down to like the last three seconds. And Baltimore uh, had an opportunity to kick a 50-yard field goal. And they, they went to kick it and they missed. And the stadium erupted in excitement and glory. And, but then the ref, the ref walked out on the field, the, the line judge, and he said um, to the Baltimore kicker, I forgive you, do over. Oh my gosh, if that happened, that ref would be crucified. (laughs) And the stadium would be utterly destroyed. I mean, all hell would break loose at mile high. You know, if you're really into winning at golf, but there are unlimited mulligans, you can never win. You are forever frustrated. You're like in golf hell if there are unlimited mulligans. 
I mean, if losers are winners, then winners are, 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 are losers, at least until they stop um, keep keeping score. If the last are first, then, well, the first are last. If all doubts are, are canceled, you don't owe anything, but on the other hand, nobody owes anything to you. That's frustrating if, if you're a banker. And get this, nothing, nothing is more offensive than being born again. Because you're born again as a baby. You spend your entire life striving not to be a baby, a little, a little child. Your, your entire life shooting on yourself so you can grow up and be the thing that you think you should be. Your life is like this scorecard. So if your sins are taken away, your life is taken away. You see, to be forgiven is to die. Game over. All is forgiven. There is no better news, and yet I can think of no more insulting, scandalous, offensive news. So if the truth be told, most people don't want the lamb to take away all the sin of the world. Just one or two of their own. That seems kind of sinful to me. It's no wonder this Pharisees had such a hard time with all of this. They had a hard time with John the Baptist because he acted like they had sin. You see, he baptized good Jews as you would baptize in that day a pagan entering the religion. He didn't baptize good Jews. I mean, he acted as if all were guilty. And they really, really had a hard time with Jesus because he acted like the sins of the world had been taken away as if all were forgiven. All guilty, all forgiven. In John 8, they, they throw a prostitute at Jesus' feet and Jesus says, let him who is without sin throw the first stone and no one does. They're all guilty. And then he looks at her and says, neither do I condemn you. As if all is forgiven. As if he's taken away the sin of the world. Well, the Pharisees get furious, and why is that? They're keeping score. They think they're winning the game. And Jesus keeps handing out mulligans to everybody. The Pharisees get furious. And Jesus says this in verse 14, right after this, he says, 814, you judge according to the flesh. In other words, you take fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you try to make yourself with yourself in the image of God and then you judge yourself by judging others in the very place of God. In other words, you live by keeping score. You see these my life scorecards? They aren't just a record of sin. The record of sin is sin. It's the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil stolen from the tree. Your my life scorecard is your ticket to death and hell. It's the evidence that you crucified the judge and then tried to take his place. The essence of sin is trying to be God, the judge. The scorecard isn't just a record of sin, it is sin. And now you may be thinking to yourself, well, great, I come to church and the preacher makes me sin. <laughs> 
well, I didn't make you sin. I just tricked you into confessing sin. Because whether or not you have a scorecard in your hand, I, I know you got one in your head and your heart. And the higher your score, the more addictive the game becomes. So the Pharisees are trapped in sin, but the sinners are set free from sin. So they're just sick of keeping score. You see, apart from the miracle of grace, you live sin. You breathe sin. You think you are sin. So if someone took away your sin, you think you die. And that's why it's so incredibly hard for you to believe that you're forgiven. If you believed it, you'd lose your scorecard. <laughs> you'd lose your life and be born again. But not just born again. Born anew with a new logos, a new reason a new song in your heart, a new motive for living. Well, Jesus says to the Pharisees in John 8, 15, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Go read it yourself. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Then 11 verses later, he writes, he says this, I have much to say about you and much to judge about you. You see, I think if we follow the gospel of John closely, which I plan on doing, I think we'll find this, that Jesus is the judge who judges our judgments by judging no one. Jesus is the judge who judges our judgments by giving mulligans to everyone. Jesus is the judge who judges our judgments with unquenchable grace. Jesus is the judge who judges our judgments by judging no one but himself in our place. God judges all our judgments with the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, Jesus Christ and him crucified is the judgment of all things. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, Jesus says to the Pharisees in 8.15, I judge no one. Then in 8.23, he says, I'm from above, like another world, another time. You are of this world. I told you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Die in your sin? What sin? Well, I think it must be the sin of counting sins. Die in your sin. But I thought Jesus took away sin. Well, John says he does. And even that he did. And now this is a wonder that we don't have time right now to unpack, but in John, I think we'll find that there are two ages. There are two worlds, two lives, two times. This age, uh, eon, or ion in Greek, and the eon, or ion, the age to come. This world and the eonios world, the kingdom of God. This life and eonios life, eternal life, uh, that means of the age. Jesus is the door between two ages, 
two realities. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the judgment between them. In God's age, the kingdom of love, the new creation, all, 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 all is forgiven like Paul writes. Listen closely, 1 Corinthians 13. Love keeps no record, logizomai, of wrongs. Love doesn't reason sin, counts sin, reckons sin. Love suffers sin, but love counts sin as nothing. Love is God, and love is eternal, and love is life. And by believing Jesus, according to John, we can walk in that eternal life even now in this world. But by rejecting Jesus, we die in our sins. And actually, anyone that rejects him is condemned already, according to John. That doesn't mean that Jesus can't take away that sin. Indeed, in in eternity, he he already has. And in time, he will, because it comes to an end. In time, he certainly will, for one day all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ the cross, and that day the gracious judgment of God will burn away all other judgments. But until that day, they're trapped in this age, even in death, outer darkness, trapped by a lie to which they are addicted. And this is the lie that the Lamb of God did not take away the sin of the world. Trapped in outer darkness, surrounded by light, trapped in this age, surrounded by eternity, trapped in hell, even though the kingdom of heaven is at hand, trapped by the illusion that they are the judge, trapped in themselves, trapped in their sin of reckoning sin, counting sin, reasoning sin, trapped in a lie, a nothing, for sin is ultimately nothing, for behold, the Lamb of God has taken away the sin of the world. And so we're standing at the edge of great mysteries, time and eternity, hell and the kingdom of heaven, this world and the new creation, the judgment of our God. We'll talk about it more, but for now I want you to believe the gospel. And that means surrender your scorecard. And now some of you are sitting there thinking, oh yeah, when I saw that baby, I knew it. I figured as much. Well, the important thing is that you believe as much. You know, I think I barely even begin to believe this stuff. And you know how I know that? I keep looking at my scorecard. After this sermon, I'll be examining my scorecard. I keep judging myself. You know, we're terrified to surrender our scorecards. Because if we don't judge ourselves, who will? If we don't create ourselves in God's image, who will? We're terrified to surrender our scorecards because we don't want to be last. (laughs) Because then how could I be first? We don't want to lose our lives. We don't want to become like little children. You know, little children are undisciplined and irresponsible. It's like they have no knowledge of good and evil. We're terrified to believe the gospel and surrender our scorecards because if we're not motivated by guilt, shame, and fear, we're afraid that we might not be motivated by anything at all. 
but little children are, are motivated. You know, no one learns faster than a little child. No one. Until we put them in school, give them grades, teach them to keep score. Little children play games and don't even bother to keep score. I mean, they'll throw a football or hit a golf ball and, and not even keep score. Little children are undisciplined, irresponsible, undignified. They're not self-aware and, and they dance at just the drop of a hat. And Jesus said, you must become like a little child to enter the kingdom. And so last time I ended with the story of the Down syndrome girl and the severe mercy that freed her to dance in the autumn leaves, remember? Surrendering her reason to God's reason. Surrendering her judgments to God's judgment. This time I was reminded of Elam Zook. What would it be like to live in this world without a scorecard? What would it be like to feel the pain of sin, but not reckon sin as something but nothing. Brennan Manning writes of visiting an Amish family with three fully grown, severely retarded children, adult children. Elam was 47, and Brennan Manning writes this. When I arrived at noon with two friends, Little Elam, about four feet tall, heavy set, thickly bearded, and wearing the black Amish outfit with the circular hat, was coming out of the barn some 50 yards away, pitchfork in hand. He had never laid eyes on me in his life, yet when he saw me step out of the car, he dropped the pitchfork and ran lickety-split in my direction. Two feet away, he flung himself at me, wrapped his arms around my neck, his legs around my waist, and kissed me on the lips with fierce intensity for a full 30 seconds. Well, I was temporarily stunned and, and terribly self-conscious. Then he jumped down, wrapped both his hands around my right arm, and led me on a tour of the farm. A half hour later, Elam sat next to me at lunch. Midway through the meal, I turned around to say something. Inadvertently, my right elbow slammed into Elam's ribcage. He didn't wince. He didn't groan. He wept like a two-year-old child. His next move undid me. Elam came over to my chair, planted himself on my lap, and kissed me even harder on the lips. Then he kissed my eyes, kissed my nose, kissed my forehead and kiss my cheeks. And there was Brennan, dazed, dumbstruck, weeping, and suddenly seized by the power of a great affection. That affection is called love. It's the motive, the logic, the reason of heaven, and it is also the judgment of God. For on the night that Jesus, the Lamb of God, was betrayed, delivered up, he did not condemn the world, but he would not stop kissing the world. He took the bread and he, he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. Eat. 
Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. In other words, surrender your scorecard. Surrender your judgment to God's judgment. Because my friends, this is judgment. It's time to come to judgment. And this is what I want you to do. Tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cups. The dark cups are wine, the light cups are juice. Both blood. And then I want you to take your scorecard. There'll be two stations that just stay in the same spot, one here and one over here. After the bread and the wine, there will be a little station with a bowl on it and some wine in it that comes from this table. And there will be a couple children at each one of those stations. I want you to take your scorecard and hand it, hold it out in front of them. Now, they weren't here for the message, so they don't know how to read it. But they're going to dip their fingers in the wine, and then they're going to finger paint the sign of the cross across your scorecard, okay? And then I want you to take it with you and keep it. Whenever you feel driven or insecure, arrogant or anxious, whenever you feel proud or just guilty as hell, whenever you start judging, I want you to look at that scorecard and remember, you've already been judged. Your certificate of debt has been canceled. Your life is forever hidden in Christ. It's baptized with blood that is fire. A burning cross condemns your condemnation. You missed the mark, but the mark did not miss you. The judge of all loves you like Elam Zook loves Brennan Manning. Indeed, he loves you even more, and he will not stop kissing you. Let's worship. And so, if you look at your My Life scorecard, you'll see a stain. Do you know how much that stain is worth? Do you know what's more valuable than the blood of the only begotten Son of God? <laughs> there is nothing more valuable. And He's perfect. And He gave you His score. <laughs> and He's all over and in your life. And now look at the other people in this room. You can look at them. It's true for them too. You see, when you believe that, that changes everything about the way you think about yourself and you think about them and the way you act toward yourself and the way you act toward them and even the way you act toward the people out there because I think they even got a card. God just hasn't revealed it to them yet. And so, my friends, God has revealed to you that you win the jackpot.
he'd like you to tell everybody else. He wants you to believe the gospel and preach the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean that in some sense we don't judge sin, because if we didn't judge sin with God's judgment, we wouldn't know that uh, there was even a scorecard or that he took it away. But you see, we can't judge sinners because he did take it away. And so in Jesus' name, believe and live. You're free. Amen.